Welcome to the Denver United Sermon of the Week. Here's a message from Pastor Rob Brindle. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Denver United. Thanks for worshiping God with us. This morning, welcome as well to all of you who are worshiping with us from home or wherever life has taken you this Sunday. I love that even as uh, we ride the waves of pandemic uncertainty and weariness, we can be one family in Jesus this Advent season. Um, Elf has become a, a quirky, special part of our family's Christmas tradition. Since the boys and Ellie were little, um, we've watched it every year, and now they all quote the lines. And I I was thinking about how, on the one hand, nothing could be less um, relevant to the sacred Christmas story that we remember in the midst of the Christmas chaos this time each year. But on the other hand, it's sneaky exactly the point. Because what is it that we love about Buddy the Elf? He is the quintessential outsider. He's the misfit, right? He's a human in an elf's world, and then he's an elf in the human world. He doesn't fit in anywhere. And it's resonant because Will Ferrell's hilarious and because it's so many of us. So many of us go through our lives learning the American skill of acting like we feel like we fit in in spaces where we actually feel like we don't fit in. And this is so central to what's happening in the Advent story. He's all kinds of out of place. And I don't know about you, but I've spent my life feeling a little bit out of place. Like I was uh, the son of an army colonel going to this prestigious prep school with the sons of senators and and heads of nations and feeling like I don't fit in here at all. I was a guy that liked to read F. Scott Fitzgerald on the quad uh, in ROTC, marching around with camouflage paint and rubber M16s and feeling like I don't fit in here at all. And uh, I was the kid that grew up, you know, um, with the, the, the large white church with the large white steeple and the organ the size of my house singing songs in church that were written in like the 17th century, um, beginning the pastor in an independent charismatic megachurch. I am a pro at profoundly f- not fitting in, right? So we had started this church and saved our money with the ideal always of living in the city, in the parish, so to speak, in the neighborhood where the church is. And finally, Mari and I took the plunge, made the leap. This was several years ago, moved um, with faith and personal sacrifice to the 1100 block of South Corona, where we had a little bungalow. um, And our block mayor invited us to a get-together. This was the fall, and there was to be a a cocktail party on Halloween, eaten, the night of Halloween, for the adults after which we would take the kids out trick-or-treating. So do you have a block mayor, the one who sort of organizes all that and tells you where to be and what to do? Well, that was Maureen. She invited us. And Mari assures me, this is a, a fact that is still in dispute, but she assures me that Maureen assured her, as I've shared with you once before, by the way, some of you old-timers, but uh, I've locked it away in the vault of emotional trauma, and this is the first time I'm letting it back out, so I'm experiencing it anew. Um, Mari assures me that Maureen, the block mayor, had assured her that all the adults dress up. 
And so Mari, as you know, an enthusiast of life and especially parties and costumes, we go all in. She's like, we've got a family costume theme this year we're doing. And so she, the theme is Elf. And so Anderson, who's a little boy at the time, is Papa Elf. She spray paints his hair gray and he has little spectacles and is adorable. And she, of course, gets to be the, the quirky, funky girl who shops at Goodwill, but looks like she shops at Bergdorf Goodman. And I get to be Buddy the Elf. Like green tights, tight collar, white fur shirt, pointy hat, the whole deal. We show up to the party ready to like encounter our neighbors and win them for Jesus and build relationship. And Maureen had three little makeup dots and pigtails and like a flannel shirt. Everybody else was very convincingly disguised as, Dis- as Denver business people on Tuesday evening except me. And so I, I looked at him and I was like, oh, oh, Mari, I'm really feeling sick. She's like, come on, just rock it. I'm like, just, just, just rock the costume. I, I don't want to rock it. I, I don't want to, don't make me do this. And so I spend, it, it was about, I think it lasted like 67 or 68 hours with men who never looked at me from the neck down. They like locked in here and never acknowledged that they knew that I knew, that I knew that they knew that we were talking about our jobs while I was in tights. And it was traumatic. And I felt like I didn't fit in. Profoundly, painfully out of place. And this is the human experience. This is the human experience which the advent and the gospel address. So that's our subject this morning, painfully out of place. Our series is Rejoice, and we're looking at the familiar texts of the nativity, the ones that we've read so many times and heard if you grew up in or around the church, or even just in in Western culture, hearing these stories so many times that they get kind of rounded on the edges, and they lose their sharp contrast, and they become quaint background for our culture celebration of Christmas. So we're looking at the Luke 1 and 2 nativity story in the text, verse by verse, with an exegetical approach to shake off the familiarity and be intellectually honest students of Scripture and try and understand why Jesus came, why God said this at this time, what the Advent is really all about, and why in each of the episodes, the announcement of the arrival of Jesus is stated repeatedly to be accompanied by joy. We saw it last week with um, Elizabeth and Mary, the women to whom God first revealed this plan, and their souls overflowed with joy, even against the obscurity of their circumstances. Today, with the shepherds, that's our subject matter, and the next week with the uh, elderly prophets in the temple, always joy. So our series is Rejoice, and thank you, Ephraim, for leading us in the Word. In verse 8, we're just going to unpack that a little bit. The Word of God teaches that night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep, and suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. Well, the first and last, the most obvious and the most critical question that this text asks is, why the shepherds? Ever wondered why shepherds? I mean, if, if you 
take it from culture's point of view, like why not shout? How could you not have shepherds? You can have a Christmas pageant without adorable kids in bathrobes and little headbands, right? You have to have shepherds. That's like, that's like asking why turkey at Thanksgiving? If you grew up with, like I did with a porcelain manger scene with straw and a little, a little uh, lean-to uh, barn thing that, that sat on your mom's piano, you know, it's a sh- you, you can't have Christmas without shepherds. But why? What on earth are they doing in this story? Why would God choose to reveal the culmination of his cosmic redemption plan to such people as these. Shepherds in first century Palestine, though they were central to the economy, which was animal husbandry and agriculture, they were socially bottom of the barrel. They worked at night, but not like working the night shift at Denny's. They were out in fields going days in a row without baths. There was a social, uh, an unsociability perhaps associated with them. Historians believe um, they were socioeconomically low, dirty, and minimally respected and embraced in society. They did that work, perhaps like what our culture might sadly look at janitors, that work that everybody needs done, but kind of has someone to look down on. That's who the shepherds were. Why would God choose to reveal his plan at its culmination to people like this? That's the question that the Advent and that this text in particular absolutely begs. Think about every science fiction movie you've ever seen. The aliens that are invading the planet, they always hover over Washington, D.C. or maybe New York or London where world leaders, people of significance and stature and influence gather. And what do they say? Take me to your leader. Why? Because your leader can do something, can make stuff happen. God's Advent, his arrival is exactly the opposite. It's to people who have nothing that they can do about it, and nobody would listen to them even if they did. So God sends an angel to these men. Why would he do that? And he didn't stop there, not just one angel, but after the angel gives the message to make the point and drive it home in verse 13, the Bible says, suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others. Literally, the army of heaven stands at attention to announce the culmination of the angels, of of the ages, to a handful of insignificant, low and obscure men. It makes no sense. And in verse 12, the message is as confounding as the method. You'll find a baby, the angel said, wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Well, if I'm the shepherd, I'm like, wait, the, you're, hold on. We've been waiting. I, I mean, even we shepherds, so this, we, our people have been waiting for a Messiah, a great deliverer, the King of Kings, the one who's going to sit on David's throne. And you're telling me that that's happening right now. And it's going to be a, an infant wrapped up in rags, sitting in a feeding trough? If there's anything in this whole equation with which shepherds would be intimately familiar, it's mangers because they lead animals in and out of barns and fields and they know how gross and slimy and full of bacteria this vessel is. If I'm the shepherd, I've got to be thinking, wow, this child is even lower than I am. 
19th century British author and Christian mystic Evelyn Underhill commented, think of the tremendous contrast, transcendent and homely, brought together here as a clue to the incarnation, to what's really going on here, to what this story is all about. The hard life of the poor, the absolute surrender and helplessness of babyhood, and the unmeasured outpouring of divine life. It's this contrast that points us to the method in the madness. Verse 15, continue with me. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Who's up for a road trip? Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried to the village. And it could be that the beginning of the reason why, maybe this isn't where it ends. Maybe there's more theologically nuanced and complex reasons, but it could start with their practical usefulness, their availability. Perhaps the the shepherd's very lowness served the purpose. They were humble enough, maybe, to be amazed by something that was beyond their doing. Think about that. Lots of us live in worlds that involve or revolve around us and where what we do is either a big deal or we're trying to make it a big deal with all of our hearts. And so we get amazed by stuff, but after a while of doing us, as the world says, do you, after a while of doing you, you cease to be as amazable by things that don't have to do with you, that either didn't come from you or don't have the potential to impact and improve you but they were just humble enough maybe to be amazed by something that didn't really have anything to do with them. Perhaps they were unbusy enough to respond with unreserved totality. Perhaps it wasn't like it might be for me. Or you where we're like, you know what? I, I want to go. I really do. And I will. But I could like pencil it in after lunch a, a week from Thursday. They're like, eh, what do we got to lose? Let's go. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are the poor. The poor are blessed not just metaphysically, not just in an ethereal sense, but the poor are, are more blessed because their ability to respond with this same unreserved totality to the good news of the gospel, treats it as actually good. They're not encumbered. And maybe that's where the rationale for the shepherds began. 20th century archbishop and human rights activist and Nobel Peace Prize winner Oscar Romero, one of the great men of God of the early 20th and late 19th century, was also, I've learned recently, a poet. And I've been captivated by his writing. He puts this in wonderful literary perspective. No one can celebrate a genuine Christmas without being truly poor. The self-sufficient, the proud, those who, because they have everything, look down on others, those who have no need, even of God. For them, there will be no Christmas. Only the poor, the hungry, those who need someone to come on their behalf will have that someone. That someone is God. Emmanuel, God with us. 
without poverty of spirit, there can be no abundance of God. In verse 10, look back, the angel said, I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. This is the meat of the message. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. Good news that will be great joy to all people. The angel speaks to some people who are emblematic of the all in all people. Like if these boundaries are getting stretched to include the people that the respectable people might have overlooked or not considered to be in the deal, the angel says to all people, this is going to be good news for all people. And so the shepherds accomplish the purpose practically in their lowness. And also they kind of make the point. The good news of Advent is joy for all people. Joy for all people. That's the good news of Advent. And that's really the big idea, I think, of this passage. I told you that over the summer I got, um, uh, over the last year and a half, I kind of waylaid in, in the um, medieval European period. I, I read through a novel series that was set in that time. It was wonderfully written and fascinating, but I realized how little I knew of that formative time in, in the history of modern civilization, the dark ages, the medieval period. Really, the social and political infrastructure was, um, was a, a dual system, a bi, a, a, had two poles, right? You had the, the nobility the lords that owned the land and ruled, and then you had uh, the peasants that worked the land for the nobility and literally reported to them in life. Like whatever they said do, they had to do. So you had the nobility and the peasants, there was two classes, and that was the structure for hundreds and hundreds of years, probably thousands prior to even this being the way of Europe. Uh, these were the formative first forces of modern Europe and thus modern uh, Western civilization. Bear with me, some of you are like, history, I'm tuning out. This has a point, I promise. So here's the way it worked. Basically, one nobility, one, one lord would be in charge. He'd be the king for a while. And then that house would run into problems with succession. Either they didn't have a boy or the person was a bad leader and a you know, psychopath. Or there was an ambitious uh, rival noble from a different house. And eventually there would be a war right? These, th this rival noble would rally other lords and, and landowners to his cause and have some reason why his claim to the throne was more legitimate. And then the ruling um, noble, the king, would gather all the, the lords noble to him, or loyal to him rather, and they'd fight. A brutal war with like pitchforks and stuff. Uh, and, and the people that did the fighting mostly weren't these nobles, it was the peasants. So the peasants would be required, remember the nobility were their bosses in life. So they'd be required at a moment's notice to leave their farms, leave their wife and kids, and take like their uh, machete that they used to harvest grain and put a bucket over their heads and go fight against other peasants who might be their friends, might be their cousins, but who report to a different lord who ends up on the other side of some conflict. And they would fight brutally, often for years and years, until one wore down the other by attrition. And then there would be a parade and there would be a celebration that would last a year and the, the new king would be heralded. This is good news for all people, but you know who it was really good news for? 
the lords, the nobility, because the ones that lost, well, they, they got put out of their misery. But the ones that won, they, and even they probably went to prison and then they were treated like lords for a while and, uh, and, and then resettled. But the ones that won, they got the land that was taken from the ones that lost. And so they became richer, more powerful, and they had, um, had brighter prospects for the future. And so it was great news for all the nobility, but the people that were doing the fighting and the dying, no matter who won, they lost. All they really wanted was, I don't care who's king. It doesn't reach my world uh, of peasantry. All I want is for you to leave me alone so I can just live my life in peace, which never happened through the Middle Ages. Super depressing time, right? And I think that is woven into sort of human expectation. Good news of great joy. Yeah, I'm sure it's joyful for the haves, but it does any change, all it does is make my life harder. But Jesus, Jesus was different. Over against this expectation of all human history, Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Angels to shepherds, I want you to know this is good news of great joy for all people. It's going to be joyful for the peasants. The joy is for everyone. You get the joy. You get the joy. Yeah, you guys get the joy, but you get the joy, and you get the joy, and even you guys, shepherds, you get the joy. That's the message of Advent. And clearly I am more excited about this than you and that's disturbing. (laughs) Just the fact that I taught you something about medieval politics, you should leave church feeling like you got something from the Lord. You know what our culture says? God helps those who help themselves. It's like apocryphal religion, you know? We, we were told, because grandpa always said it, God helps those who help themselves, meaning me and my generation who pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps and sacrificed to make the country great. That's awesome. But we turned it into some like pseudo scripture that gets passed down. I think probably more than half of Americans, if David Letterman pulled them, would believe that is from the Bible. God helps those who can help themselves. You know who that is? That's people that have it going on. That's God helping the nobility, God helping the the lords and landowners. And if you can't help yourself, too bad. Hate it for you. God has no use for you. Here's the message of the advent in a nutshell. Here's why God came to shepherds with this galactic good news. God helps those who couldn't possibly help themselves, who haven't a prayer in the world. God helps those who are defenseless, wrecked, rolled over, and left for dead. That's why the shepherds. This was Jesus' message. He stood up 30 years later. He went into the synagogue in his hometown, and he asked for the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he opened it and read, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty for captives, to set prisoners free, those who waste away in gloomy dungeons, left for dead. I'm coming for you. That's the revolution of the gospel. And so Isaiah prophesied of this time, hey, Israel, make it bigger. Enlarge the tent. Lengthen the cords. Strengthen the stakes. Invite them all in. This is for all people, this good news. Jesus said people will come from the north and the south and the east and the west. 
from the haves and the have-nots, from this side of the tracks and that, from the places that are celebrated, from the, the G8 economies and the places that are constantly set back by civil war and political turmoil and strife. And everywhere in between, people will come from this place and that, and they will take their places at the banqueting table in the kingdom of heaven. Places prepared for them. And so shepherds make that point. Verse 20, and we'll wrap it up here. The shepherds went back to their flocks afterward, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. What's fascinating about this is they received the good news of great joy. They immediately went. They went home rejoicing, overjoyed, but they went back to ostensibly the same circumstances. Roughly the same meager life, low prospects, lack of societal, societal acknowledgement and respect. Their life didn't manifestly change in the moment, but they went back overflowing with joy. Their bleak prospects hadn't changed, and yet joy dominated their destiny. And this is the bottom line. Joy is allowed to coexist with your circumstances now. It's allowed to. It can. The joy of the Lord can indeed accompany the feelings of happiness. It can just as well and probably more often accompany all sorts of other feelings, hardship, disappointment, discouragement, heartbreak, loneliness, depression, hopelessness. The joy of the Lord is it can coexist with these things. And this is where too often religion has sold us a bill of goods and too many people when they said yes to Jesus and all their dreams didn't come true and there wasn't a pot of gold at the end of that religious rainbow, they chucked the baby with the bathwater and left and started hater blogs about the church. We sold them something that isn't the gospel. Joy is not our circumstantial moment-to-moment -moment happiness. It contemplates that, it allows for it, but joy is something that happiness and sadness alike can't even touch. You know, I don't know about you guys, but I have sort of a love-hate relationship I've found with Hallmark Christmas movies. I love them because they're, they're easy on the soul, right? They're like Christmas music in cinematic form. They're background pleasantry while wrapping presents and you don't have to pay attention much because they all essentially have the same plot. But here's the thing, they make me feel joyful, except the joy is sort of of Christmas is sort of misrepresented by this. The guys, it's always the same thing, right? He's, um, his, his job is, is uh, uh, in crisis. He's about to lose it because that account didn't come through. And then like um, the girl that, of his, that he thought was going to be his life partner ended up uh, going off with someone else. And so he's lonely. He's about to be broken, unemployed. And like his mom is running for mayor, but she's getting whooped by a, a, like a mean person. And so everything, all three things, there's always three and they're all bad, except that he comes to his hometown for Christmas. Oh, and like his aunt um, has a, you know, a sole proprietor business that's getting put out of business by some uh, corporate retail giant. So everything sucks. And he goes home for Christmas. And then he meets like a, a, an even better girl for him uh, who likes him and then doesn't like him for a day and a half and then likes him again just on Christmas Eve. And then like his mom, his mom um, 
his mom's opponent for office. This is a real story that I'm, I'm amalgamating like a hundred into one. She ends up um, getting elected after all. And um, the girl loves him and his big account comes through. And then his aunt's small business gets the community rallying behind it and puts the corporate juggernaut um, to the streets. And everything culminates with a kiss on Christmas Eve. And then some guest celebrity like Blake Shelton or Dolly Parton, always a country music artist, is there to like put it all right. And it all happens, right, on Christmas. So you're like, oh, the joy of Christmas. But it's not joy that our society is selling us, right? It's not joy that our culture is selling us with Christmas, packaging it together, calling it joy. But what it is, is prosperity. It's everything working out for you. It's happiness. We all want to be happy. Look, I haven't loved the relative unhappiness of the last couple of years any more than I'm sure you have. But the joy isn't that those things are all going to magically go away. The joy is a Savior is born. And in His presence, there is a promise. Psalm 16 says, in His presence is fullness of joy. James 1 says, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider that an opportunity for joy. That's an oxymoron. That's a paradox. That doesn't make sense. Troubles seem like they threaten joy. But he says, when troubles come your way, that's an opportunity to disambiguate biblical joy, the promise of Advent from the momentary and fleeting happiness of the roller coaster of life. When troubles come your way, that's an invitation for the inexpressible and glorious joy to reveal itself and come to the forefront. Joy transcends the bleakest circumstances. It doesn't bury its head in the sand and pretend that things aren't bleak, but it recognizes that all I see that is hard is not all that there is. Isaiah chapter 9 says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. The joy came precisely in the midst of the darkness, and it came that way on purpose. This is our birthright as the born again. This is our inheritance as sons and daughters of God. And listen, friends, I don't want to trivialize. Some of us have lived through some pretty unhappy times. Some of us have lived through some pretty unhappy lives. Certainly the last two years has strained happiness in every direction. For many, economically, for many more relationally, relationships strained that were sources of strength prior. All of the political tension and rancor, the exhaustion that we all feel on the whole subject of the pandemic and another round of it. The fact that it's hard to get together for a holiday without that subject taking over and then doing what it does, divide. I've sat with so many of you who have just, your heart's crying out over the loss of relationship in your own family because of 
the circumstances that we've lived through, and they haven't been trivial. They're significant and hard. Many more, it's struggling with the stuff on the inside, the loneliness, the brokenheartedness, the trauma of what was done to you long before and trying to live beyond that, but spinning your tires in the mud. It's the disillusionment of a dream that seemed like it was from God, but never fully came to pass until it seems like life's passed you by. For others, it's the loss of a marriage or the loss of somebody you love. I lost my dad this summer and at Christmas it feels like I go through the loss all over again because it makes you do it, doesn't it? It makes you think about all the times you have with that person. Or maybe it makes you think about all the times that there should have been someone that wasn't there. And Christmas is a referendum on so much of our pain. And in the midst of the darkness, the light of Jesus arrives and shines. The Advent says God is for us and he is willing to be in the mess with us. That is Emmanuel. Our God is with us. His presence is right here and right now and an open invitation. Jesus said, ask and it'll be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and friends, the door will be opened. And the Advent is also an assurance that this world is hard, but there is so much more. More than this life, but also more in this life. Jesus said, behold, I am making all things new. He came to restore this broken world. It began at his arrival and it's continuing until his return. Jesus putting this weary world to rights, putting this broken soul back together. He is making us more, better, and whole, and he's walking with us on the journey. And that's what Advent is. It's an invitation to not just commemorate the arrival, like Risa rightly pointed out. This is a festival. It is a feast and a celebration commemorating Jesus' arrival to our world. But Advent is an invitation to make room in our hearts as Pastor Neil led us in the time of communion and then to invite him anew. Come and make your home in me, Jesus. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. Would you stand with me? We're gonna respond by right in the middle of this Advent season with parties to go to and presents to buy. Let's just take a couple more moments. Is his presence unique to this place? No, but there is something concentrated, particular, about the saints of God gathering with intention, pushing distractions aside and saying, come Lord Jesus, would you quiet your hearts? Would you open your spirits? Don't overthink it. And invite his presence to come anew, experience him, reach out, draw near. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you'll open the door and invite me in, I'll come in and dine with you. Let's invite him in. We hope you've been encouraged this week. For more information or to submit a prayer request, go to denverunited.com.